When you do a perfume ad, the photographer is trying to capture an image that evokes some kind of feeling that you go, oh, I want to feel like a girl on the beach with wet hair and sand all over her body. But you're selling a perfume. I think with watches, it's the same thing. It's like, how does it make you feel? I love the weight of it. I love the sound of it. You know, or if I layer it with bracelets, it becomes an accessory. It's a lifestyle brand. These days, that is what a watch is. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverant, and this is Hodinky Radio. I'm not going to lie. When I opened up my inbox one morning a few weeks ago, bleary-eyed, still hadn't had my first cup of tea, and saw an email with the subject line, Cindy Crawford for Hodinky Radio, I legitimately had to do a double take. That Cindy Crawford was the first thing that popped into my head. Now, fast forward a little less than two weeks, and I find myself on a Zoom call with the legendary supermodel, philanthropist, and watch ambassador, still sort of in disbelief. But it turns out that beyond being a fashion icon and arguably the first modern ambassador for a watch brand, Cindy is extremely charming and kind, and I quickly found myself chatting with her just like I would with anybody else. We talked about some of her career highlights and how she's using her platform to make a difference, but we really went deep into her connection to watches, and Omega in particular. She's been affiliated with the brand for over 25 years, and along with a few collaborators, changed the way watches are marketed and promoted to the public. Cindy also shared some of her favorite watch-related memories, including a picnic in the Alps with Jean-Claude Beaver after a shoot, and the time she jokingly told Nick Hayek Sr. that she wanted a special platinum constellation, only to find one waiting for her the next time she visited Switzerland. All right, I'm mostly going to shut up now and let Cindy do the bulk of the talking. Let's be real, she's got much more interesting things to say than I do. So without further ado, let's do this. Hey, Cindy, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Where, uh, Where are you coming to us from? Where have you been riding COVID out? (laughs) <laughs> well, we live in Malibu, and so I have to say it it hasn't been that, you know, I can't complain. I'm looking, actually, I'm looking at the ocean that way. Uh, so, and, it, and one of the, I mean, look, I'm very fortunate. I don't have to, I'm not worried about paying rent or, um, you know, buying groceries. And I understand that that is for so many families around the world, like it, it's not, you know, that is the probably the biggest stress around this whole pandemic, besides the fact that you could get sick. Um, but I think the little there are little silver linings and little blessings along the way. And I think for sure for my family, it's just been like having my almost adult children just home and around. And it's not even that they're just, you know, like, like they're not wishing to be anywhere else because, as yeah. we all know, there really isn't anywhere else. It's not <laughs> happening anywhere. So it's just been it's been kind of that unplanned just hangout time where, you know, you could do a puzzle or go for a walk on the beach or just go for a walk anywhere, play with the dogs outside without. Um, I guess I never realized how structured and scheduled my life was. And then when that's taken away from you, um, and redefining what life can look like. It's been, you know, I think we've all had 
good days and bad days. You know, sometimes you want to pull your hair out or you're just like, <laughs> you're like, when am I going to, you know, travel again or see my friends? But then there's other days where you're like, wow, like I didn't have anything scheduled and I was okay with that. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I would imagine not only is your life very scheduled, but also you're traveling constantly. And I know your kids are, I would imagine as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so to, to have everybody not just not scheduled, but also just like in the same place for a sustained period of time must be must be a big change. Yeah, I mean, definitely my travel schedule has wound down over the last couple of years. But I mean, nothing like this year, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> you know, right. so it's I've I um I think in a weird way, this this year will help me transition to whatever that next stage of my life is um, without being afraid. I think I had probably some fear about like, you know, quote unquote retirement, even though I'm not planning on retiring per se, but definitely, you know, my career has evolved and changed over the years. And I feel like there is like this next phase coming and just seeing for myself that I I don't need to be go, go, go. That was, that was a, a good lesson that I learned out of this. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people have learned that lesson and, and a lot of people have also sort of like found new passions. And I wonder, have you being home and having time, have, have you found anything new that maybe is going to be a, a big part of your next, uh, your next act? You know, it's funny because I already feel like there's been different phases of lockdown or whatever we want to call this you know i think the first month we all thought we thought it was going to be for a few weeks so you like cleaned your closets and you know did puzzles it was like and then it was like oh wait this is this isn't this is like more permanent and then we figured that's all of a sudden when we started going oh we can do conference calls and we can work by zoom and we can do all these different things um then for us here it was summer so there was still a little bit of like that even though normally we go away, you know, for a little bit in the summer, this summer we didn't, but kind of to try to recreate that experience um, at home. And then I always feel like for me, New Year is September. I'm like a mom. And so it was like always <laughs> based around school year. And so I feel like September was a little bit like, okay, like now this is, this is the new normal. Plus there was so much going on in the world. Um, you know, with the election or, you know, for all of us. Um, and I think, and now it's the holidays. So I, I haven't picked up like a necessarily like a skill or, a, but I found time to do things. Like I found time to meditate more. I found time, um, you know, I was definitely more consistent about exercise, uh, you know, playing games with like, we were playing cornhole a lot this summer. And, um, and then my husband and I just started uh, doing a little boxing on Friday. So that's been fun. Not with each other. <laughs> <laughs> nice way to work out stress at the, uh, at the yeah, end of the week. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about this, and I was planning on doing it later. But since you, you brought up the election, uh, something mm -hmm. that, you know, people may or may not know about you is is when you were younger, you know, like a kid, you, you had a dream to maybe be the first female uh, president mm -hmm. of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, and I know you've said that in interviews kind of uh, over over the years, but um, what does it feel like having like had that dream inside of you to watch Kamala Harris now uh, entering the White House? You know, it's funny when I had that dream, it didn't feel out of reach even then in when I was in middle school, like it didn't 
I don't know. Like I, I mean, I think, look, I think it's amazing. I think um, the more representation we have in government, not just by women, but you know, all different belief systems and backgrounds, like that only makes, I think our government better able to serve everybody. But, um, and, and it's exciting, I think, you know, for, for women to see Kamala Harris in office. But the way, I guess I always credit the women before me that really led the way for equal rights amendment and stuff that I never felt like I had to prove myself to be as good as the boys. I just assumed I was. And so dreaming of being the first woman president, it was, it was more like, I, I knew I wanted something bigger than um, I love the way I grew up. I grew up in a small town in Illinois and loved it. You know, we didn't lock our doors at night and I had all my cousins were in my high school. Like I, you know, so there was like family everywhere. I loved that. But I, I guess part of me also knew I wanted something more. And, and I think the like president and the fact that I was female, so I'd have to be a woman president. Um, it was like the biggest job I could think of. You know, it wasn't necessary. It was like, okay, what, what's big? One of my ele uh, elementary school, like uh, student teachers had said like a future Miss America or something. And why that stuck with me wasn't that I wanted to be Miss America, but it was that she dreamed bigger for me than I dreamed for myself. And it was like permission to dream that big because, you know, I, I grew up in like a blue, blue collar family and say for a rainy day and don't, don't set your expectations too high. And it was like, all of a sudden saw some, someone saw something bigger for me than I would have dreamed for myself. And that gave me permission to think big. And I guess president was about as big as I could think of. I'm run I told my kids I'm running in 2024. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I think you'll have my vote and a handful of other folks at uh, the Hodinky office. Okay. So uh, you, you've, you've got to start there. Um, okay. I mean, the, the path you took, obviously, is is a very different one from being president. But mm -hmm. I mean, that, that idea of dreaming big and making a big difference and inspiring people and creating change has obviously been a big part of, of your career. And I wonder how you how you think about that now, how you think about looking looking back over over your career, um, the ways in which you've been able to to really make a difference. What what are some of the things you're sort of most proud of and the things that meant the most to you personally, even if they're not kind of the big like headline grabbing grabbing things? Right. Well, I certainly I mean, I didn't have the luxury of choosing a career. Let's just say I needed to get a job. I needed to earn money. And I mean, that started way before I started modeling from babysitting to working in a cornfield to um, working in a clothing store, cleaning houses. I mean, a, a paper route, all of that stuff. So when the modeling thing kind of through tiny little series of events started unfolding, it was it was really a financial decision and it wasn't an easy one because I had always excelled at school and I always prided myself on being good in school. And I, and I got into Northwestern on a scholarship and I like that had been my path. And then it was like this modeling thing came out of left field and my parents thought it was like a nice name for prostitution. They weren't like, you know, they were very suspect. Um, but then when I got my very first job, which was a one hour um, bra shot for Marshall Fields, and it paid $150, I 
And that's what I would make in a whole week working in the cornfields, like 12 hours a day, coming home covered in bugs and dirt. Um, I was like, wait, hmm, this, this could be something. And uh, obviously it worked out okay. Um, but, you know, in the beginning it wasn't, you know, people, I, in some ways I joke that they give me too much credit because I, I didn't have like this, my career designed and, um, okay, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. However, where I think I do, um, you know, where I am proud of the way that I handled it was um, I treated it like a job. I paid attention. I learned because you get to, you know, you travel. First, you, you, you learn, you can't not learn about life from traveling, especially from, for a girl from a small town in Illinois who had never like, you know, going to Florida was like, you know, driving 28 hours down to my grandma's house. That was like, you know, the most I had ever traveled. And all of a sudden I'm on a plane to Japan by myself for two months. And this was before there were cell phones. So like, I think I called home twice in two months. Um, but so taking advantage of those, of those opportunities and learning and paying attention. And then little by little, I, I did take some chances that I think set me up for a pretty unique and long career. I think one of the first ones uh, I would say would definitely be doing MTV because my modeling agency, you know, MTV was still, you know, relatively new. They were not spending money on talent. And my agency thought like, why would you, why would you do the show that's paying, you know, whatever minimum wages for an actor? I think it's called scale. And I don't know, there was just something about it. And it gave me an opportunity to talk <laughs> and not just be a two-dimensional image on a magazine um, page. And that really, I think, propelled me into a different um, sphere. Like people knew my name and they knew my personality. Like I became a person. And then because of that, I got other things. Um, I also think that I had done Sports Illustrated once and it wasn't a great experience for me. And so the next year I was like, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to do a swimsuit calendar. But and maybe in order to justify it in my own mind, I decided to give the proceeds to the hospital where my younger brother had been treated. And unfortunately, um, he passed away from leukemia when I was 10. But it was like at that point that I saw that I could use my platform to help raise awareness and money for things that I cared about. So that was also something. And then when those things worked, like, oh, my, my uh, calendar was successful. So then a few years later, I had this idea of doing an exercise video with my trainer, Radu, at the time. Um, I felt, wow, like, I, I, can, I can produce this. I can, you know, I, of course, I brought in ex, you know, experts as well, but it was my project. And every time you do something like that and you expand your skill set. Um, it gives you confidence then to try other things as life goes on. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting, this idea you, you mentioned there kind of, of kind of in the middle there of, you know, finding ways to make your voice heard and to not be just a two dimensional image to people. And, you know, I think for a lot of, uh, I won't speak to the experience on the model side, but I think from a, a sort of like person consuming magazines and, and interested in fashion side, you know, you see people, you see the same faces on the on the runways and in Vogue and in GQ and in whatever over and over again. But one of the things that, that really strikes me about you and about your career 
is how much you do beyond that, how much you do use your voice and how much you really round yourself out into being a, a like real rich three-dimensional person, however like weird and clinical that sounds uh, for people. Like you're, you're not Cindy Crawford the model, you're Cindy Crawford the human being. And it, it's interesting to hear that that was sort of a, a self-conscious, self-aware decision from pretty early on, right? Well, I think in terms of like being a model, I always said modeling's what I do. It's not who I am. Like I always saw it as a job. So, and it's a great job and I've loved it. And it's afforded me so many incredible experience and financial independence and all that. Um, and again, I didn't set out to use modeling as a springboard to create a brand, to do this, to that. It just, I was just interested. And I think one of my approaches was just um why not you know if somebody came to me with something it was why not like mtv why not and and having a little bit of that um willingness to try new things possibly fall on your butt um but either way you learn something and i remember my mother who actually my mother never gives advice unless you ask for it which is which is actually the best advice she's given me, which is like, wait for your kids to ask for advice. But um, one thing she said to me was, it was just like, she showed me that like the only real failure is in not trying. And I think that that's true because not everything I've done has been successful. I mean, I, a perfect example is I, I kind of got persuaded to do a movie and really I wasn't I'd never done a play or in high school I wasn't taking acting classes it just you know a producer had this idea hey let's take the biggest model at the time and throw her in a movie and um I said no I said no 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 and finally I just said yes and I wasn't prepared I still had fun though um my sister worked on the movie with me we we're in Miami there's a lot of bad stuff and the worst was the reviews of me specifically. <laughs> but um, I also learned, you know what, I don't really, I can let that dream go, even if, and it wasn't even really, I mean, I think every kid has a dream, right? Oh, I'd be fun to be in a movie. But it wasn't the kind of dream where I want to be an actress, I'm going to take acting classes, I'm going to, I'm going to work at this craft. It was like, oh, someone's offering me a movie. Oh, sure. Why not? But after doing that, I was like, you know what? I actually, I'm more comfortable being me. I, I can get in front of any camera being Cindy Crawford. But when you give me lines and try to have me be someone else, like that makes me really uncomfortable. So that was a gift because it was like, oh, I can let that go. I don't ever have to think about that again. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I, I don't want to do too abrupt of a pivot here, but I, I do want to make sure we we have time to talk Um a little bit about your your relationship with Omega. So Omega, uh, you've been with Omega for quite a while, since uh, 1995. Um, you've been pretty, and not just sort of like doing an ad campaign here and there, you've been pretty deeply involved with them since the beginning. So I figure we'll we'll start kind of where, where it started, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. Do you remember how, how Omega first kind of like reached out to you, what your first interaction was with them back in, in the 90s? Yes, I remember that I got a call from my agent about doing a just a photo shoot. It was just a modeling gig. It really was. It was mm. like, um, hey, uh, Omega. That's just the way jobs came in. It would be like it's Versace with Avedon, and this is the money. So this was it's Omega with Herberts, who was one of my favorites, 
um, and also a very good friend of mine. Um, and here's the money. And it was, and it's shooting in LA. I'm like, okay, love shirt shooting with her, but it's going to be, I knew it was going to be pretty. And we came to LA and we shot it in Herb's studio. And that was the first time I kind of met the team. And it was just like any other modeling job. It went great. It went smooth. But I think we all clicked. And so they invited me to an event a few months later. I think it was in Milan to kind of, and I, I don't think they were really using, I mean, I don't know if they were really using ambassador. I mean, the ambassadors at the time, I think right. it was kind of a new idea that was, um, yeah. I, I have to give, um, um, his name was Jean, is Jean-Claude Beaver. He yeah. was the head guy at Omega at the time. And he really had this vision for me and the way that they shot me. And it was very more lifestyle. And, um, and then he had the vision of incorporating me into these, because, you know, the watch world was kind of very like niche in a sure. weird way, like all those watch geeks who all like geek out on certain things, but it, you know, to really see, especially for a woman's watch as fashion. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, we just got along and we traveled the world together. And even though Mr. Beaver went on, I've been with Omega, as you said, for 25 years now, it's great. I always say like, <laughs> I've been married to Omega longer than I've been married to my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's, we've it's never funny. had a fight. <laughs> That's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I was going to ask you about about uh, Mr. Beaver. You know, he's he's mm -hmm. a larger than life personality. Uh, you know, I think most folks listening to the show probably know know who he is. Um, you know, we've we've had him at some of our events and things in the past. Um, he's he's incredible. And, you know, like you said, it was this sort of vision he had to incorporate personality and pop culture into watches that really helped kind of push them out of obscurity in a, in a lot of ways. And you were, you were not just there, you were a sort of like foundational part of this. Um, are, are there any stories from, from early on, from some of those early trips and early shoots that, that stand out to you as, as particularly just like fun memories? Well, I mean, this is just a testament to how much I love Jean-Claude is just, you know, he is a visionary. He really is. And I know he's, I know he gets the credit for that, like, I, I think they did like a Harvard business yeah. thing on him or whatever. <laughs> so, okay, he gets enough credit. But so what's really amazing about Jean-Claude is his, he has impeccable taste. And what he really taught me was taste is not about, it doesn't have to be about money, right? And so one time we were doing an event in Switzerland and he invited my team to Lausanne where he had has a home and he took us on a picnic for the day and we took and he like packed a picnic basket and we're go on this little train up to the top and we get off we're having and actually I just posted a picture on my Instagram recently of this but where we get off the train and we're having like this little picnic on the side of the tracks and we're like oh the air is even better here the grass is greener you know it was just like such a perfect charming day and then he unfolds the picnic and there's hard-boiled eggs and we're like even the eggs here are like such a beautiful color and he started laughing and i said what are you laughing about and he said oh he added something to the water that he boiled them in just to enhance their color a little bit you know and it was like that kind of attention to detail but also appreciation of 
beauty for beauty's sake that I always loved about him. And he taught me how to eat raclette. I mean, I've never met a man who just has uh, joy for life. You know, I mean, he, yeah. it's great wine. It's the best cheese. It's hard boiled eggs that are, you know, dyed to just the right color. That's incredible. That all that all tracks 100%. None of that surprises me at all. Um, okay. that's, that's wonderful. Um, yeah, I mean, really, really early on, also the incorporation of of not just yourself, but like you said, photographers like Herberts, like really mm -hmm. making watches something that could be elevated to the same level as something like fashion, for example. And I know mm -hmm. that that sort of to call it a duality maybe isn't the right the right word, but that pairing of of watches and fashion and fashion and watches um, is something that I think you know you and Omega and and Jean Claude have been a big part of really reimagining what watches can be in that way. And for you, I wonder, how do you think about the relationship between fashion and watches? Well, these days, that is what a watch is. We do not need a watch anymore. There is no practical reason to wear a watch. I mean, my watch is never even set on the right time half the time because I don't have like one of those <laughs> fancy things that you know, keep it clicking when, even when you're not wearing it. And it is a fashion statement. It is, I mean, especially for men, it's, I think it's always been that men have so few like accessories. So like the watch is, and I, there's this thing about, you know, like for instance, my husband, who's very understated, but like he'll notice, you know, if someone's wearing, you know, certain watch or he I know like he'll have a t-shirt on but he'll still have like the statement watch like you couldn't tell anything about him except from his watch I think for women um now it's it's also I mean you know when I grew up of course you had a watch for time but now it's how does it make you feel like I love the weight of it I love the sound of it you know or if I layer it with bracelets it becomes uh, an accessory, a fashion accessory. And I think for people who really love watches, you know, kind of understanding the craftsmanship. Um, and I know for me, like going the first time, and I've been many times since, but going the first time to, you know, the factory and watching the watchmakers put these tiny, I mean, they're like smaller than a half a grain of rice, you know, these tiny pieces all together so beautifully and then it's all covered up half the time i mean some watches have the open back which i love but a lot of times we don't even see like the most beautiful part of a watch really um and i and i love that real watch lovers like they have an appreciation for the for the watchmaking and the precision yeah no that that's awesome i mean it's, it's good to hear I, I knew you'd been to switzerland quite quite a number of mm -hmm. times but it's good to hear that kind of early on they got you right in the factory and kind of really in the in the thick of it. Um, yeah. You know, Omega has, has also mentioned over the years that they've, they've involved you in the design process for the, the mm -hmm. constellation models over the years. And, and I'm curious, like, what, what does that mean that you've been involved in the design process? Sort of what, what has your <laughs> sort of level of input and, and what's that experience been like for you? Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly not a watch designer. I've never claimed to be, but you know, we, they did put me in a room with the designers when they were doing the redesign and it was like at the time it was about the scale like what feels right i mean mm -hmm. you know sometimes women wear 
chunkier watches and then they go more delicate and then chunkier and then more delicate. And at the time they were moving more toward delicate, like as a piece of jewelry and understanding that like, it's not your boyfriend's watch or whatever. It's not a man's watch. It's your watch. So, you know, when talking about like the claws and the different, um, you know, letting me weigh in with the team as one voice, because in a weird way, like maybe being the muse or something, but to weigh in what what I wanted and was looking for. I didn't win every argument, <laughs> but <laughs> but I got to um, to have a voice in that. So that when we did launch the constellation, and I think that was in like ninety six or seven, um, I felt you know I felt a part of it. Yeah, that's and that's great. when I think they really up with the my choice campaign i think i think that and now all of all of their ambassadors you know that's like such a tagline for omega is my choice but i think i might have been the first one where it was my choice great yeah i think i think watches in in a lot of ways have this sort of machismo about them it's like a guy's guy thing there's the whole mechanical mm -hmm. aspect of it and for a lot of watch brands their their women's watches end up being you know they take a men's watch, they shrink it down, they throw some diamonds on it, and they call they call mm -hmm. it a day. Um, it's mm -hmm. kind of an afterthought. Um, but Omega has has been making really great women's watches for a long time, and I wonder how how your interactions with the brand and just being kind of in the watch world in in general, how you try to maybe like get get away from that and and bring it to be something that can be like actually really thoughtful and and not be this kind of like macho guy thing off on the side. I'm sure there are women who are, you know, appreciate like the guts of the watch and the precision of the things we were talking about before as well. I would say a lot of women are just like, is this, how does this watch make me feel? It's like a perfume, right? It's a lifestyle yeah. brand. It's not, you know, when you do a perfume ad, obviously you're not usually smelling the perfume, right? So the, the the, who are, the photographer is trying to capture an image that evokes some kind of feeling that you go, oh, I want to feel like a girl on the beach with wet hair and sand all over her body. But you're selling a perfume. I think with watches, it's the same thing. It's like, how does this watch make me feel? Does this make me feel like I got it going today? I'm going from meeting to meeting. Well, from Zoom to Zoom, whatever. <laughs> um, or is this like a super chic watch that I want to wear at night and it just peeks out of my jacket? You know, I mean... For me, it's that's how I look at a watch. Is uh, unfortunately, I have a pretty nice collection of <laughs> Omega watches at this point. But it's like, how's this going to make me feel? Like sometimes I want a big chunky man's watch because that makes me feel different than like, you know, a very streamlined, you know, the little Quadra or I think it's called the Quadra or like my little Constellation makes it's like a different vibe. Yeah. Are, are there any watches over the years that you've gotten that, that like mark special occasions or that you wore during a particularly important event? Like ones that just, you know, when, when at the end of the day, if you had to get rid of things, like these are the ones you're going to hold on to? Well, I have a one of a kind, actually, that Mr. Hayek, um, the senior who's since passed away, um, I was teasing him once about like, oh, I want a platinum one. I was just, I was just being bratty. I mean, but in a fun way, I was like, <laughs> I want a platinum one. And the next time I saw him, I had a platinum constellation. Um, what I didn't understand is that platinum because it's soft, 
it's not ideal for watches. So it's a more of a special occasion watch, but it's, it's beautiful. Mm, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we didn't, we didn't even touch on, on working with Mr. Hayek senior, but I, I would imagine, you know, him paired with, uh, Jean-Claude must've been a, a force to reckon with. It really was. It was, I, I think in the middle of it, I didn't really realize, um, what an honor it was to work with both of them. And, and, you know, after Mr. Beaver left, I was like, oh, it's never going to be the same. But I have to say every single team that I've worked with at Omega has been incredible, including like I've, I've been there longer than most of the people. Like, I think I'm on my fourth <laughs> marketing and PR team. Um, you know, I mean, if you think about it, yeah, I, from the 90s. Right. So, and I really love like the thing that's been incredible about working with Omega is they I mean, now we're family. I mean, but also and literally family, because the last campaign I did with my right, my, both my kids and my husband, but, you know, they've invested in me over the years. Like it's there's we just have good synergy in terms of like what we stand for, what our brand values are. They just align very nicely and um, they they are excellent partners. So I, I know that Omega is also you you and Omega are involved together on the philanthropic side as well with things mm -hmm. like Orbis International. And philanthropy has become a, a huge part of what you do, right? Yeah, I mean, really, I've tried to um, include philanthropy from almost the very beginning. And fortunately, I've worked with companies like Omega and Revlon that are very philanthropic. And that's been great when you when those two things align. And with Omega, even from very early on, usually every time we would go somewhere, we would do something with a hospital or a women's organization or something, depending on which country we're in. But the biggest, um, I guess, relationship that we've had lately is with Orbis International. And they invited me to Peru several years ago, and I took my daughter and we went well, first we went to Machu Picchu and did a little sightseeing, but then we ended up in Trujillo, which is on the west coast of um, Peru, and um, got to see this incredible flying eye hospital and these volunteer doctors from all over who came down there not only to do some surgeries themselves, but what's really incredible is that they teach the local doctors so that when they leave, they're not they're not it's not like the benefit is only from when that flying that flying hospital is there it's like they teach the local doctors to help as well and and just simple things like that we take for granted um like strabismus which is cross eye like we don't have you know if a child is born like that in you know most places with access to health care that is fixed if it's not fixed it could cause so many problems with depths perception, even walking, they won't be able to drive and then they become a burden on their family. So something so simple, it's not, you know, it's an outpatient surgery in one day that can ch change the course of a family's life. Yeah. Are, are there any other causes that, you know, we'll, we'll give you a minute here to, to do a little log mm -hmm. rolling. Any, anybody you're working with now that you want to kind of give, give a plug to or a shout out to? I mean, the main, the, the main, cause for me is pediatric oncology because of, of losing my brother. So he was treated in Madison at the American Family Children's Hospital. So that is probably my number one um, place that I not only gift 
money, but also energy. And one of the cool things I did recently, well, I did it two years ago, but I just recently did it again, is there's a photographer named David Yarrow. And I met David at a party and he said, would you, know, would you shoot with me? And I will split the proceeds from the pictures with you for your charity. So we shot together two years ago and he's already donated a half a million dollars from those photographs to American Family Children's Hospital. So I was like, okay. I'll, so he asked me to do it. And I get, again, I'm like, okay, and let's even raise more money this time. So we just shot together like a month ago, um, which is complicated. COVID shooting is definitely yeah. uh, a lot more precautions and complicated. However, we shot in Billings, outside of Billings, Montana, these incredible pictures. And I'm super excited to, you know, I love the images, but also to have, to be able to do something like that for such a great cause is it's like a win, 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 win. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible that you get to have that, that one-to-one as well. Like, it's not like you're doing something and it sort of trickles down and eventually Mm -hmm. ends up kind of benefiting someone, but that ability that you can like get up in the morning and go do something. And it it has that kind of like big tangible effect must be really empowering and, and exciting. It is. I mean, look, when I went to the Orbis Flying Eye Hospital, I was like, oh, I wish I was an eye doctor and I could come down here and volunteer my time doing surgeries instead of just standing there handing out free teddy bears to the kids. I mean, I felt a little (laughs) bit like I'm not, but we were able to do a documentary and that helps raise awareness and money. So, I mean, that's the part that I can do, but there are times where, you know, I... I'm jealous of people that are more like hands-on healers. And, um, but I guess we all do our part, so. I, I think you're more than doing your part. I think, I think <laughs> you may be selling yourself a little short there, but uh, c- coming up, and I know there's not a release date on it yet, uh, and I, I won't bug you at all to try to, to, try to sneakily get a I wouldn't be date, able to. But, uh, I wouldn't be able to answer you on that one anyway. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, you have a, a docu-series coming out on Apple TV Plus mm-hmm. uh, soon-ish, we think. Um, the Supermodels, uh, mm-hmm. that kind of catalogs the experiences of, of you and some of your contemporaries. Um, what what can you tell us kind of as an early look at this series? Like, what can, what can people expect and, and look forward to? Well, I think the main idea is it's more of a look back on kind of like, you know, how that supermodel phenomena happened, you know, what cultural forces were taking place that kind of led to this moment. And if you think about the 80s and the excess of the 80s and and cable TV and, you know, all of a sudden fashion was on TV. And, you know, there was, um, you know, a lot of different things happening that kind of led to this moment of uh, the supermodel, you know. And then what that moment then also kind of unleashed, you know, cut to uh, America's Next Top Model, where, you know, like I didn't even grow up even thinking modeling was a real job, where then, you know, Tyra Banks had a show called America's Next Top Model. So every young girl thought, oh, I can be a model. And then we have Instagram where everyone actually is a model. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was something I wanted to ask you about. I mean, you know, there there were obviously a lot of phenomena, cable TV and things in, in the 80s and 90s that kind of meant everybody was much more visible uh, than they had been mm-hmm. in the past. And we've obviously seen that explode again over the last decade or so with 
things like Instagram and TikTok and, and other things. You know, as as a person who you know your your job is is to be seen in a, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways and to express yourself through through visual media. How do you how do you see things changing and maybe where do, where do you see things going? It's been interesting because you know my generation of models it was a very curated you know um, final image that you know, we weren't followed every second. We weren't documenting every second. There really wasn't even a lot of behind the scenes footage that wasn't really a thing. Um, and, you know, you spend all day taking thousands of frames of film and then they would pick the one. So I remember like, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't really do Facebook or Twitter. It was like, I don't really get this. But when Instagram came out, I was like, oh, I get this. It's visual. Like you said, it's like, it's a picture. I I, right. I know pictures. <laughs> However, it's funny. And, and my daughter and I, I've learned a lot from her about it. That because, you know, my generation is like, you picked the best picture of yourself. You didn't put on like the picture of you like depressed in bed eating like the Haagen-Dazs, you know, right. like that, that, that wasn't how we, you know, we had like, your, your public persona forward facing and, but in a weird way, because people are sharing so much more that unless you share some of like your realness, like then you come off as not being real. And that's like a little bit of a struggle for me. Like I, cause I don't know how much of like my, my true home, I mean, self that I want to share. It's not like, oh, wow, I'm smashing up hotel rooms and, you know, right. crazy at home. And you and I put on like this all American girl image. It's just that that just wasn't the way I came into celebrity or whatever you yeah. want to call it. And so now it is a little bit like, I don't really need to share every little thing. Yeah. But obviously there is a hunger for that there is an audience for that but that's so i guess really i like i asked myself well, who do i want to how do i want to present myself and there's no right or wrong answer as long as it resonates with you yeah well i think i think the idea that you get to choose how you present yourself is something that's very different from how things were maybe when you were starting your career i mean i know early on there were you know your your mole is obviously extremely famous. Uh, mm-hmm. And in the in the early, early days of your career, I know there were some some, you know, shoots you did where it was it was retouched out of pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it was kind of that famous 1986 Richard Avedon Vogue cover mm-hmm. that that changed things. But it's funny to think that like that wasn't your decision to leave the mole in the photograph. It was it was their decision to present you that way. And I wonder how you how you think about that that like this this giant the giant media machine that is Condé Nast sort of like made the decision that this was going to be a signature thing for you um and it it all went from there versus you know what would happen today where like that would be your choice to make I guess although like still it's funny because obviously my daughter is a model and you know she'll someone magazine will do a story on her and she might not like the hair she might not like the makeup. It, right. it models models don't, especially young in your career, you don't get to have too much say in what you're mm-hmm. wearing or how they're shooting you. Eventually, hopefully, you earn their respect and you 
you can maybe influence, you know, I don't really comfortable in this or, Hey, let's do it this way, whatever. But that's not how it starts out. And people like, I will notice on Kaya's Instagram, people saying, Oh, she, you know, why is she, her expression like that? Or why is it like this? And it's like, that's the one they chose. Like there right. were more, you know, it's kind of like, we are, and I think that's what's frustrating sometimes for models mm. is we're paint. We're not the paintbrush or the person holding the paintbrush. Um, you know, hope sometimes you can add to the vision, you know, but sometimes you can't. Sometimes they mm. know what they want and they've already said, told you exactly what to do and you just do it. And um, so I don't, I still don't even think today it would have been my choice totally. I mm. think what, the whole mole thing that is most interesting to me is that as a kid, I wanted to have my mole removed. I hated it. I got my sisters called it an ugly mark. I got teased about it. And um, my mother was like, she was smart. She's like, yeah, you can get it removed, but you might have a scar and you don't know what that's going to look like. And I was like, yeah, okay. Then I went to the first modeling agency and they were like, uh, I don't know about that mole, but we'll do test pictures anyway. Cut to after that first Vogue cover, it's not that it changed, <laughs> but it was like, because it was like the seal of approval for Vogue, but it also made me stand out from the other models. So in a weird way, the thing that I was most self-conscious of, which was being different, like, you know, we all are worried about that, became the thing that helped set me apart. And also that a lot of women have a freckle they don't like or a beauty mark they don't like. And that made them relate to me. So it actually, you know, I think that's the irony is the thing that I was most insecure about became the thing that actually helped set me apart. Mm. Yeah, I'd love that. Well, we're, we're starting to run low on time. And I, I know you have somewhere to run to after this another another zoom call, no doubt. But, <laughs> uh, there are two questions I want to ask before we finish ones, one's selfishly for me and one is for the audience. The, the one okay. for me is um, you know, I'm, I'm a photographer. I'm deeply interested in photography. And, and I have to ask you, of all the photographers you've worked with over the years, do you have a favorite? Do you have somebody who you feel like is your sort of like closest collaborator and where you're, you're most on the same wavelength? You know, I could never pick one, honestly. I, I could pick a handful. <laughs> I mean, okay. and, and for different things. I mean, look, I worked with the masters like Irving Penn, Richard right. Avedon. Stephen Mizell is like a young master, right? I mean, Herb Ritz, uh, Helmut Newton. I mean, um, Patrick de Machelier, I adore, and he and I have coll collaborated a lot. Um, so I would say like just off the top of my head, Sante Durazio. Um, and then really the first photographer that really taught me not everything I know, but a lot is Victor Skrebneski who passed away earlier this year. And he was from yeah. Chicago, but he, he, I think in a lot of ways, he was my first mentor. Hmm. That's incredible. All right. So the, the last thing I'm going to ask you, and then we'll let you go is, uh, there, there's something I've heard you say quite a few times in interviews when asked about your, your lifestyle. And that's mm -hmm. that you try to be 80% good 80% of the time. Yeah. And so what I want to know is what you do when you're being 20% bad 20% of the time? What are your okay. greatest indulgences in life? Um, margaritas <laughs> or, cause I figure if I'm just having Casamigos on the rocks, that's that's not 
that's not too bad. Um, I would say chocolate. I mean, now it's kind of, I'm kind of boring because I kind of like now I actually like eating healthy. That is how I choose to eat. It's it, I mean, being to me bad, it would be, you know, eating stuff that I shouldn't or not exercising enough. I mean, the other the other bad stuff is just fun. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is great. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing all of this with our with No our pun audience. intended. Yeah, no pun time. intended. Good way to end that. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this. And uh, You're welcome. Thanks. Okay, you too. Thanks. Thank you so much to Cindy for joining us, and thank you to Cindy's team and the Omega teams for making this episode possible. This episode was produced by Grayson Corhonan and was recorded in Los Angeles, California. Please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It really does make a difference for us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.